0: Okay, we are back. I'm here with Mike Broyer. Mike is a farmer, a retired Marine, and a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate in Kentucky. We just finished our first part of our conversation about a just transition to a green economy. And now we're on to his second top priority, which is access to quality, affordable health care as a right. Mike, uh, why do you think this needs to be the second top priority in your list?
1: Well, um, Probably it should be number one because as I as I campaign, um, it is here in Kentucky. It is the thing that is on everyone's mind. You know, um, when there's a mass shooting, guns pop up to the top, and of course now everyone's talking about coronavirus and things like that. But the item that always bobs back to the top is healthcare, and that people are very very keenly aware of the fact that they are a paycheck or a unfortunate accident or a sick family member away from losing their homes. And so you know, we have a very high poverty rate in Kentucky. We have an awful lot of people on disability here. Uh, we have twice the national average of people working at um, minimum wage. And so, yeah, thank you, Mitch McConnell, but all for all those great things. And we have some of the crappiest health in, in the United States. I think we're number five in diabetes we are uh, number three in um, in air pollution, which causes COPD and a lot of other respiratory diseases, and we're number one in cancer deaths, you know, in in the country. And so healthcare. So you've got you've got a very large uh, proportion of the people who are living at subsistence, and you've got a huge number of people in need of pretty expensive healthcare. So for us in Kentucky. And while this may not translate well to the rest of the country, but in this particular race, um, it's very important to the people here in Kentucky. Interestingly, um, so here in Kentucky, the uh, Obamacare, the ACA exchange is called Connect, right? So back about 10 years ago, uh, I was editing our local newspaper. I did that for about three years, and uh, it was just when they began to tear apart the ACA, right? Mm -hmm. And so I asked, I said, "What, what do you think about? you know, Mitch McConnell trying to tear apart the ACA and people say, well, I don't need that. Obamacare, uh, Mitch McConnell got us connect. And <laughs> it was like, no, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, you do laugh or you cry. I know, uh, but it's, it's the kind of McConnell special voodoo where he can trick people into. So, so we when the ACA was enacted, uh, we moved almost 400,000 Kentuckians tenth of the population onto some kind of insurance. And they will merrily vote it away from themselves, not realizing what they're doing. And so so for me, I favor a transition to a single payer system. Like modeled quite a bit, like on Canada. Um we talk all day about the economies, overhead, customer satisfaction. Those are things that are all on the record. I mean people will trot out anecdotal evidence and say oh, well, there's this one guy who wanted to get his hip replaced immediately and he had to go to Buffalo from Toronto. I don't care about that guy. I care about people who need health care, who need, who have diabetes, people who've got COPD, people who need to have dialysis. Those are the people I care about. If you can't wait a month or two to get your hip replaced, you know, then, and those people, it's funny when you hear those anecdotal stories, it's always someone who can afford to cross the border from Canada to the US to pay cash, which immediately puts you at the front of the line. So, Um, So, yeah. So I I see us having a single-payer system. Personally, I think that um, retaining the ACA and having a public option is the least disruptive way to get there economically. Um, That's just my opinion. But I'll tell you what, if Mitch Mitch McConnell uh, succeeds in tearing out ACA root and branch, as he's promised, um, I'm all in for Medicare, uh, Medicare for all but it just i'd i'd rather have a more um uh, trans, you know a trans a smoother transition economically towards
0: a single pair system. Uh, that's just me. Mike, I 100% agree with you. Here I was expecting to spend some time disagreeing with you, debating back and forth between a transition vehicle, but I'm 100% there with you. I wanted to ask you, because it is in the news, uh, coronavirus is a big thing on people's mind currently. What do you think needs to be done that's not being currently done by the administration beyond something like an emergency UBI as I know you would support?
1: Well, I mean, truth. I mean, just, just you know, what did George yeah. Bush call it? Truthiness. We need more <laughs> truthiness, as George Bush used to call it. Um, the 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 fact that we have this maniacal, you know, solipsistic buffoon at the head of the government who is incapable. I, I, I honestly, I think he's incapable of telling the truth. Um, that's you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not going to do a, a remote diagnosis think um and just the other night uh, when he gave his first uh, two speeches about this when he's talking about cutting off um cutting off travel from europe goes off script and throws in that he's going to cut freight from europe as well and i mean crashes the stock market because he doesn't have the discipline to read off the stupid teleprompter you know, this is how uh, self-indulgent he is. His desire to appear smart and authoritative causes him to go off, strict, go off script and throw in some crap and crash the stock market even worse than it was crapping. So what do we need first? We need truthiness. Um, but uh, because in, in times like this, um, information is our best weapon. Um, and so if you, if you deny the fact there's a problem, because you can't handle the truth, um, then then you fire your, you know, you fire your experts and you belittle science and uh, you disband uh, the um, uh, pandemic flu response team that was built into the National Security Council because they're just a bunch of, you know, Chicken littles, always always saying, hey, something bad could happen. Let's get rid of those guys. And so now you're to the point now where we've gotten rid of our experts. We've you know, we belittled science. We've conditioned the country into believing just whatever blather comes out of the president's mouth. And now we're faced with a real thing, like people freaking dying in the street. And um, so now what do we do? Luckily, we have good people um, in public service and who who've stayed in. And they're willing to uh, um, speak truth and say, no, there's not going to be a vaccine in two months. It's going to be a year. You cannot count on that. You've got to do social distancing. We have to have an economic package that doesn't freaking give money to the gas and oil companies, but injects it at the bottom because people will be losing their homes because they've been backed into a corner to the point where they either – and if I start sounding like Bernie at one point, again, just give me the <laughs> high sign. If I start talking about millionaires and billionaires, but well, man, you're right up my, you're in my wheelhouse here. Um, but we back people into decision. Whereas individuals, they say, do I go to work and risk, I don't, risk infection and come home and infect my family? Or do I stay at home, take care of my family and miss a paycheck? And, and, and just like those guys I was talking about earlier at the Black Jewel Mine, miss a mortgage payment, miss a car payment and be on the street. And I think that people are going to say, I can't have my family on the street. I'm willing to risk it. And we continue the cycle of community, um, you know, the community infection, faction, and we are screwed, literally screwed. And to have a government who cannot tell us the truth is the root of the problem. Yeah. Just one man's opinion.
0: No, I, I 100% agree with you that the truth is the biggest blunder of this administration because, frankly, when we all can see that this is a problem, and he can't. That just leads complete anxiety that there's just nothing being controlled. And I don't know if you've seen some of the videos of this, but people at supermarkets fighting over basic goods like toilet paper is a result when you don't have competent leadership at the head, calming you down and telling you the truth. So I appreciate you speaking that truthiness to me right now. Um, So, Mike, on a a separate subject from the coronavirus, uh, you were mentioning how you supported a single-payer model. But beyond the insurance aspect, one of the biggest cost barriers that people are facing in our healthcare system is drugs, prescription drugs. Um, And we currently are paying more than double the average of all other industrialized nations currently.
1: What do you think can be done to help lower the prices of drugs? Well actually, you know it 's funny because um my first topic I want to talk to you about was a category I called low hanging fruit yeah and, and and the danger of low hanging fruit is by calling it thus you you tend to minimize its importance, but there's some freaking low hanging fruit here, and the first one is this: you just simply i mean you can do this with a stroke of a pen if you 're a president you authorize HHS to negotiate drug prices with major pharmaceutical companies just like every freaking modern country in the world does okay so we, all right so uh, we have a friend here locally who's a realtor here in Kentucky he's self-employed self-insured and he drives to he drives to Canada twice a year to buy his insulin and even with his two journeys you know back and forth to Canada twice a year he saves $6000 you know that's after all the transportation and time off work. he saves about six thousand dollars. and here's the cuckoo thing is that he's a Trump guy. Um, he is someone I've discovered this class of people since I've started campaigning who are what I call bottom liners. Hmm. And all they care about, and they're mostly like small businessmen, is do I have more money when I file my taxes this year than I did last year? And they don't care they don't care what happens to the country. They don't care what happens. They don't care about social justice, economic justice. They care. And, you know, they see themselves as bootstrap kind of guys. I started this business. I feed my family. It's all I care about. And so I understand it. I don't agree with them, but I understand it. So simple. And, and I, again, I don't want to call it low hanging of fruit um, because it'll make it sound like it doesn't mean nothing. But real simple. HHS negotiates drug prices just like every other major modern country in the world. Okay. So
0: one thing that was uh, proposed by someone like Andrew Yang on this subject is even if we get the negotiations in place, sometimes they're still not going to budge with us. They may just say, okay, we're not going to sell it to your public uh, plans. And so do you support something if they're not falling in line, potentially having a public manufacturing uh, to compete with it?
1: No, I You know, I think it's a slippery slope when we have... Uh Uh, The government owning the means of production, personally, I think, you know, all this, all this um, charges of socialism from Mitch McConnell, I can brush it off. You know, when he thinks that clean air, clean water and safe schools are socialism, I I can deal with that. But the government owning the means of production, no. And now, now the government does great research. You know, the government, the government gives out grants, the government authorizes people to work. So if you've got a company that doesn't want to play ball, that's fine, you know. You can fund three major universities, you know, fund three major universities and say, hey, why don't you find something else? You know, I don't find myself agreeing with John McCain a lot, um, but, but back when he was running for president, he um, he was proposing a uh, prizes, science prizes, and he said something like a million bucks to the first person who doubles the storage capacity of a battery, <laughs> either, cuts, either cuts the size or weight in half or doubles the storage capacity, a million bucks. And I mean, like, that. for me, that's capitalism, right? Like, you know, that is pure profit motive, because you know that across the world, there are people who've got great ideas, and I would rather incentivize them, and particularly through our public universities, I'd rather incentivize them than the government take over means of production, which I think is a slippery slope, personally. Yeah.
0: No, I, that's a really interesting idea. I, I really appreciate that idea. I think the last subject I wanted to talk to you on in terms of healthcare is a subject that I think a lot of progressive candidates don't get to talk about enough, which is elderly care and senior care. Um, what do you think needs to be done to help a lot of these seniors who are either going into, uh, inpatient care or they're going to home facilities? What can be done to help those individuals try and have a, you know, comfortable retirement and be healthy in that?
1: Well, okay. I think, and here's the danger of universal basic income. Um, is treating it like a Swiss Army knife, like <laughs> yeah. every problem you see, you could deal with UBI. But if you take a look at the way we care for our elderly as compared to Europe or Asia, where that the elderly person is remains part of the family, um, and and not to circle back to coronavirus too hard, but I mean we've had these outbreaks in senior centers, and where then people go and visit them. They're in, they live in close uh, community with each other. People go visit them, then come back to their families, infect their families. But if that elderly person who with a you know distressed immune or compromised immune system was living in the home, much higher chance of surviving. So I think the first step is, is that people don't go in the home to start with. Why do they go in the home? Well, they go in the home because both of their their son and daughter-in-law both have to work because they need two jobs. So, and that person really can't contribute, can't contribute anything other than their social security. So, you know, you got UBI, the, 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 the ability to stay home and care for an elderly parent and, and keep that person in your community and in your family community, um, I think is much higher. And I, I think back to when I was a kid, many people had their grandmother or grandfather living with them. It was not yeah. unusual. They were the de facto babysitter. You know and and so um you know i i think the first step and i hope i'm answering your question but i think the first step is not putting them in the home to start with and create an an economic system a just economic system where they can stay with their families as long as possible yeah
0: i think that's a really great point we had our grandmother stay with us during her final years even when she had health problems we had a nurse come in because you're right both my parents had to work and so it still was a beneficial situation because um, during the early stages, it was just physical, so she could still, like, take care of us as kids, mentally aware and take care of us. But then later on, when it became more physical, we had the in-home nurse. And I think you're absolutely right. It's it's a more humane process. We are connected sure. generation to generation. Um, so I, I strongly agree with you there. And I think we need to kind of break some of these traditional societal concepts, whether it be, like, everyone needs to go to college. You might want to go to vocational school. You might want to go take a business. Not everyone needs to go in a home. They can stay at home with the parents. Right. Um, and I, I and like these are kind of
1: new. These are kind of newish conventions. You know, the putting people in the home is kind of yeah. a new convention. Um, and the and the everybody's got to go to college. I mean, kind of a, a artifact of Vietnam. You know, <laughs> everyone goes to college, so they don't got to go to Nam. You know, and uh, I, I think that, you know, when I talk to the, I spent a lot of time talking with unions here. UAW, Steelworkers, Teamsters, UMW. And, uh, you know, they, they, they want the stigma to be taken away for going into work, going into labor. And uh, whether you, you, know, you want to be a plumber, electrician, whatever it is you want to do, there's value in it. And, and one way that my wife and I was, we were raising our son, was we were never hung up on him going to college. Mm. I mean, both she and I are kind of over-educated people anyways. But for us, it was always, we want him to be happy. You know, we want him to be fulfilled with his life and and is. He's just a great kid and and, you know, I I consider that a win, but shoving somebody who doesn't want to go to college into college is it's terrible. Yeah, I I completely agree with you there, Mike. I,
0: I think not everyone is even built for college because frankly, if I'm being honest, college didn't prepare me for the job I have now and I took on all of that cost. I'm happy I'm in a nice job now. But it didn't give me any skills for it. You get trained once you're on the job again. And so I think, frankly, we need to just be reforming some of our earlier education so everyone has that baseline. But that's a whole other subject that we can get into. And rather than do that, I want to take a quick break so that we can get to that Swiss Army knife and start talking about universal basic income, living wages, and workers' rights. So we'll be right back, and we'll talk more with Mike on that.